This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. How Bad You Are by Mike Flores. This article is from January 30th, 2004. It's almost 14 years ago. Uh, it is more, more than, than 14, 14 years, years ago. ago. Uh, nice math. I see that the standards at New York University have declined since my wife and sister went here. Hey, I go to the film school. <laughs> I, I make movies, not... Uh, interesting. You quote, make movies, eh? Yeah. All right. That's what I'm doing right now. All right. Realizing how bad. This is like the second article I wrote. I think this is the second article I wrote on my second run at Star City Games. I think. This was extremely popular and controversial when it came out. Controversial. Yeah. The theories that were espoused in this article, people didn't know about yet. I think the majority of the listeners are just going to accept them to be true at this point. But in January of 2004, people were like, oh, how is that? That's not possible. It might have even been the first article I wrote when I came back, the first time I came back. And is there, I don't care if there's a chronology or not. Uh, but it's, you can see it's marked as a select article. There was no premium yet. That's how old this is. Wow. Yeah. I actually read this article, um, I think, a couple months ago. And I wanted to revisit it because I think it's a really important article. I think it's... It's one of the Michael Flores articles, I think, that are, it's really good for improving play. If you're looking for, like, specific things to maybe spot in your games or how to, you know, catch mistakes. So, oh, coolio. Let's, let's. Okay. In. All right. Ready to roll. One thing that causes me to shake my head in disbelief on a regular basis is listening to um, friends and teammates who complain about losing to bad beats while maintaining they had not themselves made any mistakes. Though obviously, I maintain some level of respect, in some cases very high levels for these individuals, I cannot help but totally disregard their complaints. The thing is, in most cases, most players are unqualified to say whether or not they've even made any mistakes. So complaining about late-game bad beats or opponent top decks is fairly irrelevant and tends to obviate their positions when whining in this girlish manner. I would never write that sentence today. Yeah. Girlish manner? Wow. Hashtag me too. Damn, Michael J. Qualification <laughs> of understanding. Not knowing what a mistake is. I like to say that I learned more in working with John Finkel and Steve OMS for one month prior to U.S. Nationals 2000 than I did in the entire sum of the rest of my experience as a Magic player. We did almost no constructed practice, because our deck choice was made from the outset. For constructed, we mostly tuned against the expected Nationals metagame, rather than the Regionals one. Instead, we focused on draft. That draft practice taught me better card valuations than I previously had for Masks Block Limited, but served John maximally. He came off a long dry spell to a perfect 6-0 record on day one and took one of the wildcard berths to the first Masters event. As we all know, he dominated day two almost as well as day one, besides a lone loss to Mono Green Trinity, capped off by a win against Rich Frangios' unique Rebel deck that stands even today as one of Brian Kibler's favorite matches. It was time to get settled for top eight testing. Tom Guevin and Andrew Johnson were invaluable in constructed testing. Up until this point, going into the top eight of the national championship, we had done very little constructed testing, as I said. We devoted essentially one night at neutral ground to constructed, and it involved my batching John's gauntlet all night, such that we selected Napster because it beat everything but mono blue without missing a beat. Aaron Forsythe's Angry Hermit, though, was something we didn't prepare for or anticipate not to mention the breakout deck of that tournament and John's quarterfinal matchup. 
Tom ended up being particularly astute in his understanding of the Napster-slash-Angry-Hermit matchup, explaining that winning was all about board development and that Napster's hand destruction was only minimally effective. Tom pointed out how great Arc Lightning was against John's build, and that his silver bullets were a little tarnished against a two-color deck with a lot of utility. Engineered Plague, Parish, and Persecute didn't have quite the oomph they did against Straight Trinity, and Blasterm generally demanded a Parish all by itself because of the danger presented by Angry Hermit's Red Reach. From a strategic standpoint, Tom taught John that this was a matchup of time. He needed to win before Angry Hermit could set up. He needed to kill Aaron before Aaron had the mana for his bombs. Failing that, he had to erase any advantage Aaron had on the board as quickly as possible. It was on the board that Aaron was going to play his game. Aaron's deck was a glorious top deck machine, and in the actual tournament, he took John to five games by ripping exactly the card he needed one turn from death more than once. Andrew was helpful in that he was rooming with Aaron and fellow top eight competitor Mike Turian and lent us a copy of their Angry Hermit deck for testing. <laughs> and that's a true story. Those guys top eight, those guys top board of Team Pro Tour together. And he like shipped us a copy Aaron's, of the of Aaron, Aaron's Literally, Aaron's here's our 75, bro. <laughs> now, even though Tom was the genius of this testing session as Napster's mommy, I constantly voiced my opinion as to what I thought would be right. John kept telling me he was trying to concentrate on testing with Tom, and at one point he even said, Mike, you make, on average, one mistake per turn. Please let me test with Tom. At that point, I did not understand what a mistake was, so I necessarily disagreed. The next game, John opened up with a strong anti-angry hermit draw of Dark Ritual, Skittering Horror, and was presented with any number of options for turn two. I said, why don't you play Skittering Scourge to make this a three-turn clock instead of a five-turn clock? John glared at me. I bent down to read Skittering Horror, which happened to be on... to happen to be one of my unique signature cards at the time, embarrassingly enough, and realized that even if I didn't then understand exactly what making a mistake in Magic meant, my suggested play would surely have been one. So why did you suggest to play <coughs> Scourge over Horror? Because Scourge is a... Black, no, black horror was time. already in play. Horror has oh, the ability, okay. um, if you play, it's, it's awesome, oh, it, right? It, it's, it's a 4-3 it, creature for 3. Oh, I mean, that, that was awesome. <laughs> it's yeah. a different world. <laughs> if you play a creature, it dies, right? So I was like, play a different creature, Johnny. Um, definition. Time. Mistake. Ken Crooner wrote a great article on mistakes, or errors as he calls them, here. This article opened my eyes, not in the sense that I learned something new, but by giving names to things that I found and still find myself doing in real games. Ken's article basically outlines the methodology of making a mistake, describes how these occur during a game, and under what circumstances. What Ken does not do is tell you what a mistake is. Its definition is actually quite simple. A mistake is any play that is not the optimal play. There are no spectacular plays. There are no good plays. There are no plays for which you should pat yourself on the back. There is only the right play and a huge number of other plays, none of which are the particular right play, and therefore what we call mistakes. So this is one part that I thought was really interesting, because yep. I think in Magic, at least from my experience maybe playing the last couple of years, I see a lot of maybe on coverage or, or maybe watching gameplay of of people playing, like, really good turns, right? Yeah. Like, you play that really well. Or for me, even when, like, there are times when I'll, you know, do well in a tournament or in a, or in a match, and I'll say, wow, I, I played really, I made some really good plays in that that game, right? Yeah. But it, I guess it's interesting for, for this to sort of simplify that, right? It's either I made the right play or the wrong play. So I would put it this way. I didn't even have language for what I'm going to tell you right now when I wrote this article, right? Mm -hmm. So my sophistication as a strategic thinker has continued to grow over the course of the last 14 years. Even if I'm less active in writing magic articles, I'm like highly active in business strategy or, you know, modeling in, in other things. What I would say is, we've talked about this before, you, there's just like a field of play, right? There's like an X, X by Y axis, like there's a Cartesian yeah. plane, right? And that whatever you do falls within the context of somewhere in that Cartesian plane, right? <clears throat> so I think that what some people who 
who don't understand how the model works is they think like, let's say the, the maximum height of this plane is 10, okay? They think that, that they can make a play that is value 11. Okay? They can't. They can make a play that is value 10, right? So, so they, and I think because they're not very good at evaluating this quantitatively, they think that if you make a play on the app on, you know, uh, the, on the order of like an 8 or a 9 that they've made an 11, when in fact they haven't even made a 10. Okay, like that's that's why. So let's imagine for a second, because this is a Cartesian model that we're talking about for a second, that there is an X by Y that has complexity 99. Okay, it's incredibly complex, like it's nine across and 11 high. Okay, and that's that's the best play is 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 99. If you execute at like, I don't know, 79, right? you're probably executing at substantially higher of a level than the average Magic player can even conceive of, right? And you're not at 99. To be clear, 99 was achievable. You executed at 79. Let's put this a different way. Recently, you and I have been working on a different project, right? And uh, I said, look, I would like you to execute your behaviors in a certain way. Do this, do this, don't do this, right? And then you'll ask me questions sometimes, which will make me annoyed, and I will say something along the lines of, that sounds an awful lot like taking Eidolon of the Great Revel out of your deck and playing Shrine of Burning Rage instead. You might win a Grand Prix that way, but it wasn't right, okay? And the thing is, like, you just made your life more difficult at every single turn. It might be cute. Like, you're the guy who won a Grand Prix with Shrine of Burning Rage, You'll go down in history. But if your objective is to win the most matches and not to just be the guy who goes down in history, you just made your life more difficult, right? See what I'm saying? Mm. You have to be able to contextualize. You, you know, Tony Robbins has, has an equivalent of this where he's just like, just get real. What's reality look like? What are the parameters under which we live? You can't make the right play unless you know the answer to that question, right? I think you're just making random plays. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So anyway, long story short, let's imagine for a moment your opponent has a Skittering Scourge, which is a 3-2 creature on the battlefield. At the end of turn, you have a single red mana open, and you have the cards Shock and Lightning Bolt in your hand. Right? You want to eliminate the Skittering Scourge before untapping. If you use the Lightning Bolt, that's not a, you know, I think almost everyone would be able to identify the usage of that lightning bolt rather than the usage of the shock to eliminate the skittering scourge. Because it's too tough to just Yeah, you just wasted a point, right? And you're a red deck, so that point to the face might be valuable to you in mm -hmm. the future, right? Almost everyone can identify that as a Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. The, you're accomplishing a very similar thing in both cases. You're using a single mana, you're using a single card, and you're exchanging that with a single creature on the part of the opponent, right? All those things are true. They're not that different. And yet, almost everyone listening to this can see how abhorrently disgusting using the lightning bolt rather than the shock is, right? We'll all agree with that. What they don't necessarily appreciate as nuance is every single decision that you make is the same as that decision. It's only a matter of degree. One of the plays, it's not that one of the plays will make you win and the other play will make you lose. In fact, making the wrong play will make you win sometimes. What you want to do is identify the plays that make it most likely for you to, to win over the course of many, many games of Magic. Sometimes you vary your play in an individual game. For example, if you, can, if you think you can accurately read your opponent, you know what he has in hand, then that might affect, you know, you know in the abstract, let's say, um, you know, you, you would make a certain play, but if he has a certain card in his hand, you might want to make a different play, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, that, that can change, and you know, those things, and one of the things that's great about Magic is that no two games are the same, right? Like, that there are millions and millions of potential things that can happen, even just from somebody just playing an Arid Mesa on the first turn. My God, how many different things could happen next, right? Mm -hmm. They could cast anything from, like, a Brainstorm to a Lightning Bolt. Anyway, let's get back to the article. Why do you keep clicking? The, 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 it's going to register those clicks. I'm just making sure that we're on track. Okay. All right. 
So when I'm reading beautifully, it's because I'm reading beautifully. When I read choppily, it's because Roman is mousing over cards that he doesn't know, and I, <laughs> I don't know what the next word I'm is. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know that a three mana four three was. Yeah, but we're narrating an article right now. You don't need to know right now, right? You need to, you need to scroll and not click too much. I'm just looking out for the viewers' sake. In case okay, there aren't even card. any viewers. Canada, <laughs> you may not know what the right play is and therefore make a mistake. The great thing about mistakes is that you have the opportunity to make them almost constantly in magic. You can err with every stack, step, and phase, and sometimes with plays not on the stack, like playing land, tapping a talisman, or morphing up a creature. And I mean great in terms of volume, not in the sense of quality to you, the player, obviously. Now this is a hard thing to get your head around, and especially for players who have a hard time with patriarchal explanations of the universe, Probably a controversial definition. Despite the fact that I was working with none other than John Finkel, I resisted this definition myself, likely in hindsight because I was making so many mistakes and didn't want to own up to them. <coughs> Excuse me. On every stack of every turn, there is one exact right thing that you should do. One, there is a particular land that you should play, there's a particular order in which you should cast your spells, there are hands you should mulligan. Even when we have lands and spells, there are times that you should go out on a limb praying that you draw mana. Anytime you deviate from the exact right play, you are making a mistake. That is not to say there are not varying degrees of mistakes. Some are fairly harmless, tapping a coastal tower when you have a large number of both islands and planes in play. Some are more relevant, such that they may or may not cost you games, tapping a salt marsh for generic mana when you may later have to tap an underground river for colored mana. And there are some fairly lethal ones. Whatever you did that just cost you the game that you didn't think would cost you the game at the time, but ended up costing you the game with, what, bad beat? Keep in mind that even the mildest mistakes, like that first Coastal Tower example, are bad in the sense that making them will lead to a pattern in your play that will eventually catch up in your win-loss column. I don't mean to uh, harp on this, but that's a thing you did, right? Tapping the yeah, I, innocuous mana tap cost you an invitation to the Pro Tour, right? Well, yeah, I, I would have had the 4-0 for the RPTQ and for the double drawn in. And that was just, that, I mean, that was a crazy mistake that I made on my part, right? I, so, I mistapped the land to cycle. So if I recall, you had um, Ipnu Rivulet as a source of blue and then a blue-white land also, right? Yeah. And the life point was irrelevant, right? So you drew a yeah, blue it was, cycler. I was putting against, like, a, 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 like, one of the ramp decks. Yeah, so you drew a blue cycler, cycled it with a blue-white, uh, the, the blue-white dual land, and then drew a white cycler, right? Yeah. And then you died with Approach as your top card, right? And, like, yeah, like, three turns later down the road, I, I died with Approach on top of my library, where I could have cycled. Where you would have won the game there. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be that would be a great example. Like, you think that this is, like, it's not even a thing. That's a thing. Definitely. And it's the thing is people don't realize it's a thing because it's not usually a thing. But the problem is we don't play one game of magic. We play one million games of magic. Eventually, you inch these things and they end up being in the loss column instead of the win column. The thing that people don't understand, John hammered this into my head. There is no such thing as getting extra wins. There's only such thing as getting extra losses. The way the model works is there's a maximum number of wins, right? So we're saying like, if the top of the model is 10, there's not 11, right? I can get 10 wins. I can't get 11 wins. That's where the scale ends, right? So people are like, oh, I can inch back up. I can just make it up later. You can't make it up later. There's a maximum number. If you execute perfectly, you get the maximum number. Any failure to execute is less than the maximum number. You can't catch up. It sucks. It sucks. Uh, the thing that Chris Pakula hated about me in the early 2000s is I would make these mistakes and my opponents would make worse mistakes. <laughs> I think you reference that. Like, <laughs> Do I? Yeah. yeah, let's keep reading. They would just make worse mistakes and then I would win. You'll, you'll see. Keep reading. Negative. Re I haven't. I don't know. This was like 14 years ago, this article, right? <laughs> Negative reinforcement. Inspiration for the master. A related topic to the self-analysis of mistakes is negative reinforcement. In my experience, magic players tend not to recognize their mistakes when they win. Often, they will not recognize their mistakes when they lose, but when they win, players generally assume they do everything right and win because they excuse, execute so well on their well-oiled machines, etc. ad infinitum. This is a silly notion, especially at the amateur level, and following this kind of thought will keep you at the amateur level. The fact of the matter is that making the right play will sometimes lead to a loss due to factors related or not, and making the wrong play will lead to a victory a dizzying amount of the time 
in such a way that you may never even notice that you are making mistakes at all, i.e. the point of this article. It's the next paragraph. (laughs) Chris Bakula, one of the biggest influences on my game and probably the number one practical reason that I got onto the Pro Tour and started working with top-level pros at any point, has always been particularly critical of this aspect of my game. He said that I often didn't win because I played well. I won at the PTQ level especially because of two factors. My constructed decks were leagues better than my opponents on average, which allowed me to make mistakes that did not ultimately cost me games until, say, the critical single elimination trials of the top eight against more highly skilled players on average, and that even if I played badly, my opponents would often play worse, canceling out the fact that I would sometimes throw away games. Just something to think about. So on this, um, I was... uh, I went to, like, dinner with my parents on their anniversary once, and I was just talking to Chris, like, on the phone. It was, like, 99. It's just like, going out to dinner with your parents doesn't get you on the pro tour. <laughs> and I had played PTQ the next day, so I was unpracticed. And, like, the dead guys gave me their deck, and I just, like, played my Cloud Elemental deck instead. It's still almost top-aided. But it didn't matter. You know, there was, like, three dead guys in the top eight. So then later, he just encouraged me to, like, go to this PTQ in Detroit from where I lived, and it was like an insane snowstorm. But I drove to Detroit, and that started a run when I won every single PTQ in Detroit for a year. I would, like, drive out there. I won every single tournament they had. Is that insane? It's insane. Right? So, and it was like, I mean, I kind of crashed my car on the way back once, oh. but it didn't matter. I had won the qualifier. Was, I went to a qualifier on Easter Sunday. <laughs> well, actually, like, Saturday, Holy Saturdays, like the day before Easter mm-hmm. Sunday, and, like, semi-crashed my car at, like, 4 in the morning driving. And I had to go to, like, you know, brunch and everything the next day with my fam, but I had the blue envelope. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so he did. And then, you know, we, we road tripped to, like, CMU together and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I was, like, really excited because Chris had a CD player in his car. I was like, oh, wow, a CD player. Um, and I, like, brought all, like, my, like, Sarah McLaughlin, whatever. He, like, threw them in the trunk and cracked the jewel cases, which I guess I deserved. Um, so, anyway, he just played this crazy metal and, like, Conan music the entire time. So, I, imagine road tripping with Chris Bakula for, like, an entire weekend where it's just nothing but, like, music. That was a thing. Um, but anyway. Probably the best recent example of the negative reinforcement in my own play was an article by Zvi Moshowitz describing my round one victory over a Psychotog player at a recent extended PTQ. You can read my own report and analysis here. Zvi contends that I made a mistake in not declaring a mulligan when presented with the hand of Genesis, Genesis, Mental Note, Roar of the Worm, Wooded Foothills, Wooded Foothills, Yavamaya Coast. My God, that is an unkeepable hand. So if you go back up, Roar of the Worm is a four, but only from the graveyard. Genesis, which I had two of, is a five. I had three lands and one castable card, which was Mental Note. Right? If that had been careful study, it would have been a different story, but it was Mental Note. Mental Note is like a really bad thought scour. And later made a different mistake by giving my opponent Smother when he played Intuition for Accumulated Knowledge Smother Smother with two copies of each spell in the graveyard. <coughs> the problem is that I destroyed this opponent. I clearly, I didn't win cleanly, and I didn't just win. I annihilated him. The only damage I took in either game of the match I did to myself, and I was up several cards against a deck with the Intuition Accumulated Knowledge engine. He was basically never in either game. Whatever tactical missteps I made in either of the above decisions was dwarfed dramatically by my understanding of the matchup, my ability to resolve key spells due to my opponent's lack of same understanding, and the raw card advantage of genesis and deep analysis. Given my keen understanding of the matchup, the fact that everything I wanted to happen happened because I was able to dictate the battlefield using his superior understanding. Ultimately... The fact that I won the match 2-0 meant I bounced glibly to the scoring table with my belief that my deck beats Psychotog, confirmed in the best possible fashion by triumphant victory. If Zvi hadn't been there to critique my decisions, I probably wouldn't even be thinking about these particular issues today. Just because what you wanted to happen happened doesn't mean you didn't make a mistake. My opponent wanted Smother, he got Smother, and he still lost. I played Genesis against his whole deck. He let me, and so I won. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't have not given him Smother, forcing him to waste time on accumulated knowledge, or that I shouldn't have declared a mulligan when that first came. Come on, this mental note? Not even careful study. 
which can fix my hand. Addressing negative reinforcement is probably the most difficult aspect of improving your game. It is hard to catch because we tend not to analyze games that we win and therefore make the same mistakes over and over again. We keep hands we should mulligan and give our opponents the wrong cards when the intuition. Roman Fusco texted me between rounds every round of the uh, PPTQ last week. Destroyed red. Destroyed red 2-0. Destroyed red, you know. And I, I didn't want to be discouraging because I wanted him to win because if he won, he was going to take me to the RPTQ, which is what I want in life, right? But I didn't want to be discouraging. Roman Fusco, undefeated first seed in the Swiss last weekend, right? Did not ultimately win. No. So we talked it out afterwards. Well, now I think my deck destroys red. He lost to red. He lost to Capolic and Lopez in the top four. Capo was a, former, a Dominican Republic uh, World Championship competitor. Uh, I've played him a couple of times. He's a good guy. I beat him in the finals of a PPTQ. I beat him also in the Swiss of that tournament also. You destroyed his red deck, right? Yeah. There's what I said. I said, Roman, your deck does not destroy red. You're lucky if you win. I, well, I beat it like three times. I beat two. Here's the problem, okay? Either one of these two things happens, right? So we're talking about a Cartesian plane. This is different, right? This is like a bell curve now. So if you do a bell curve on the approach of the second sun draws against against uh, the red deck, there's like these narrow bands at the... <clears throat> actually, it's a reverse bell curve. It's very, it's very, very um, fat and tall at the far ends. And it's like really, really shallow and wide in the middle, right? So... There's these draws that you just come out perfectly and then combo kill them. That's a thing that can happen. And then, there, then you know, that you just hit. Like, you don't have to spend any time doing the things that you have to against other decks. Like, they do something and you're just like, essence, scatter that. Like, you know, what, you know cycle. Like, they tap out and then you, like, censor their hazard. They, like, numbly come across and then you settle them. They play two guys, you fumigate and gain two, maybe you cast like one Glimmer of Genius, and you go, oh, so let's see, my remaining cards are seventh land, approach, approach. Okay, <laughs> like, that hand, you just destroy them, right? They are never in it, okay? Then, there's these draws in sideboarded games, there's like, whatever variation of authority of the councils on the first turn. Sometimes it's two authority of the councils. Sometimes it's more than two authority of the councils, right? You're like, I had an authority of the councils on the first turn. I must be good, right? And it kind of doesn't matter how badly you play after the authority of the councils because you gain so much time because of this. You're just going to like derf, derf, and then mumble your way into, into killing them, right? Sure. Now, the problem is there is a long, freaking wide long shallow canoe in the middle of those two kinds of draws and you lose every single game that's there right so the thing is i don't want no i'm, I'm not i'm not kidding man like we're, we're we are we are good friends that only play mono red and <laughs> approach that's both of us right true or false true okay so there's this look like, seriously it's just, it is horrible in the middle right so you're kidding yourself if you're like well i beat approach i mean i'm sorry i beat mono red it's just you just have the outlier games right like the average game they crush you and it, it's not even fun right like ah uh, okay my only argument i think in, in general red does like crush approach my, my thing i was i guess i was trying to say was that the deck that I played had Renewed Faith, which is a card that... Al and I made you cut it before yeah, the tournament started. thanks. <laughs> true or false, the version that you played was more appropriate to the room, whether or not you... No, were yeah, that's okay. true. You did the right thing. Yeah. So don't complain to me the about room, The room the right was a bunch deck. of green-white decks and, yeah. and snake Do not, decks. And the green-white deck won the tournament. Yeah. Luckily, he's taking us to the Pro Tour. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a mise. I don't know how you swindled that one, but... Check plus plus. Because both of the final, you know, when I lost to Capolkin, you know, he, he was willing to take us to the RPTQ, and so was my friend. So I was like, all right, stick, stick around. This is like season one of Survivor. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, good job. I will be happy to uh, help engineer a Pro Tour uh, qualification for us. Um, you know, you know, much love and appreciation. that I'm just saying that when you win, you just look past the things that, that you know, you, you, yeah, you, I think you don't check your privilege when you I win. think we talked after the tournament, you were like, you know, when you win against red, you, like, destroy them, right? It was never legitimate when you win against red. You just destroy them. Yeah. There are I no mean, good games. 
I don't, I don't know. I, I had a really good game against Red that I... What is your definition of a good game? They hit you a few times before you approach them twice? No, I, I had a close one where I, I think, you know, I made I made the optimal play in situations. I mean, you don't... I mean, you just... You don't get a gold star for making the optimal play sometimes. Like, that's just... Sure. That's just the expectation. Right, so this is what I'd say. I've watched you play approach against Teamer a lot, or, you know, back before they eviscerated Teamer by taking the good cards away, right? You are way more productively conservative against Teamer than I am. I think that if we both played a million games against Teamer with the same 75, you would win a few more games than I did because of that. You're, like, very productively conservative. Like, I'm like, why did you do that instead? It makes no sense. <clears throat> and you're like, no, it makes sense because of this. And I'm like, oh. Oh, that doesn't come up that often, but actually you would win a game if that, you know, if that were the scenario, yeah. you would win a game that, I, you know, it's like he could have Glorybringer and X and then he can get me, right? So I don't want to play into a negate here, right? So if he negates me, he still has to have this, but then I can play approach the next turn. And I yeah, and, and that was a game like I played at the, the PPTQ where I had to like kind of think for a second, see what my outs my opponent had and what, you know, I, I had the choice between two plays and the final turn of the game and, you know, I made the right play. Yeah. Because of it. So, yeah, but all I'm saying is, like, even if that's true with your playing against Teamer, and I think that you do identify the opponent's outs better than I do from, mm -hmm. from that perspective, I just think you just don't realize the limitations in the model that you're working under. Sure. And, like, you just have, you just, you'll, you will not be maximally good unless you, until the point that you realize that you, there's no 11 out of 10. Right, and sure. that you're probably operating around a seven or an eight. Right, there's room to get better, and there's but there's no magical room. So I think that the point of this article is people are all, all thinking they're a twelve out of ten when they're like a six out of ten. Right, and we can talk about how that is separately. But let's let's finish finish out by talking about mistakes and time. Oh my god, is this the part where Bobby watched me play? Just just read. Oh, Bobby. <laughs> I was playing in the last qualifier, not counting the last chance qualifier for last year's PT Houston. The format was Odyssey block constructed, and not surprisingly, I was running a blue-green threshold developed with Brian David Marshall. I didn't like having to play in this PTQ at all, because I was technically qualified on rating, except that there was a reporting mistake on the K value of a tournament I had won earlier in the summer meaning that I needed some small number of points in order to make the ratings qualification cutoff. But I wanted to be qualified. So, there I was, gaming the PTQ. Blue-green was not actually my first choice. I really liked the mono-black pirates deck, but due to horrible things on day two of the Pro Tour, stalking Tiger Hidden Gibbons somehow dropped from their first-place position to a nowhere land of non-qualification meaning that Paul Jordan, the owner of my Planned Pirates deck, would be making top eight with it himself, and I was stuck with my previous week's weapon of choice. So with Pirates on my mind, there I was, three rounds deep. My third-round opponent won the game one roll and played first. On his first turn, he played Swamp. On my first turn, I played Island. I had mental note in hand. He passed the turn back. My opponent followed up with another Swamp and played Mesmeric Fiend. With the following hand, I chose to let the fiend resolve. Aquamoeba. Aquamoeba. Breakthrough. Mental note. Werebear. Forest. Island. I could have played mental note in response, but I didn't think that would be particularly good play. My opponent may have taken the mental note rather than the one of the potentially more relevant cards, or I could have randomly put a more juicy card into my hand, say a phantom centaur, that I would rather not have hiding under my opponent's fiend. To my thinking, Swamp Swamp Mesmeric Fiend could represent for the opponent one of three known deck archetypes. A black-blue Braids Tempo deck, the mono-black Pirates deck, or a hybridized mono-black control slash hybrid Pirates blend. The obvious choice would be for the opponent to take Werebear, my best enabler, and the other possible choice would be to take Breakthrough, Card Advantage, and Synergistic with Aquamoeba, Werebear, and Wild Mongrel. So you can imagine my surprise when the opponent instead chose Aquamoeba. Why would he do that? I even had another Aquamoeba. I decided he wanted me to play Werebear. The only reason he would want me to play Werebear, potentially a 4-4 attacker in short order, given the blue cards in my hand, as well as a powerful mana accelerator, would be because he had an answer in his hand that could tackle Werebear, but would not be good against Aquamoeba. That smelled like slithery stalker to me. 
So on my second turn, after a mental note at the end of his turn, of course, I decided to say, screw you, opponent, and play Forest Aquamoeba. My opponent untapped, tapped three lands and sent my forest to the graveyard with Rancid Earth. I untapped, played an island, putting me back on two islands, and sent Aquamoeba for three. Luckily for me, somewhere between my mental note and the ensuing draws, I had plucked Basking Root Walla and Wonder. Obviously, I used Wonder for the Aquamoeba pump. <coughs> Down to 17. On his turn, my opponent decided to respond to my aggression by counter-striking this Mesmeric Fiend. The Basking Root Walla jumped out of my hand and met his Mesmeric Fiend. I would have preferred to pump and save it, but alas, that was impossible with UU open. Nevertheless, I was able to recover my Aquamoeba. Unfortunately for me, the opponent followed up his attack with one of the worst possible cards for me at this point. Braid's Cabal Minion. I untapped and lost one of my islands. I ripped the land, but unfortunately it was yet another island rather than the forest that would have allowed me to play Werebear. With Wonder in the Yard, I sent Aquamoeba for another three and played the other Aquamoeba, leaving me with two islands and two Aquamoebas in play. Godman 14. My opponent did something, but it didn't involve killing an Aquamoeba or an island. So on my turn, I lost an island then tossed two cards from my hand to put my opponent to eight. On my sixth turn, I had a really tough decision. I was down to just an island and my Aquamoebas. I could either lose an Aquamoeba and send the other with Wonder, or I could lose my island. If I didn't draw land, specifically island, I would end up losing Wonder potential next turn, even if I saved the islands this turn. And if I kept both Aquamoebas, my opponent would have to block with Braids or take six, meaning that I could win the game next turn with any number of different ways. I made a hard choice and lost the island. Of course I didn't draw land. I sent the Aquamoebas. Both had cards pitched to them. One put my opponent to five. The other traded yet another card to get rid of Braids. If I had been able to save it, I would. But out of cards, I was at least able to get that dangerous permanent off the board. As it happens, my opponent didn't draw anything to block an Aquamoeba or any of the zillions of ways he must have had in his deck to kill a creature in time. And my little blue beast did him in winning me the game with no cards in hand and no non-Aquamoeba cards in play. He revealed his top card, which, of course, was Chainer's Edict. That was some good magic. I won the game with no cards in hand and no non-Aquamoeba permanents in play, while my opponent had both cards in hand and lots of lands. In fact, if I had played any less precisely, sacrificed a man instead of an island, been less all-in with my attacking, I would almost certainly have ended up on the wrong end of that Chainer's Edict. I played so fast and hard that I denied my opponent the opportunity to draw his out. This was probably the best game of Magic I had ever played. I liked this game so much that I immediately told my friends, the Pro Tour champions. And to think, he used to be good at telling stories. Bob Maher. I, of course, didn't understand why Bob was shaking his head. This was the best game I'd ever played. I had my back against the wall the entire time. I had no cards in hand and only an Aquamoeba when my opponent lost. I never broke out of Braid's Lock, but I never gave up either. Dave Price pointed out something very obvious, which was why Bob was so disappointed. Even assuming my opponent had Slithery Stalker, which he didn't, and it was right to hold the Werebear on the second turn, which it wasn't, I should have played the first Aquamoeba with Double Island. Imagine how different the game would have been if I had just held the forest. I would not have lost it on the third turn to his Rancid Earth. When I played the Basking Root Walla to get back my second Aquamoeba, I would have been able to pump it rather than just trading with the Mesmeric Fiend. Turns later, especially given the fact that he didn't have the Slithery Stalker, I would have been able to play a sizable Werebear rather than just tossing it to Aquamoeba for an ephemeral 2 damage. It might be reasonable to say that I played a really good magic from turn 3 forward, that I played out of one or more mistakes made in the first turns. But the fact of the matter is that I was a little lucky, just lucky enough at the right moments to counteract all the horrible luck I had in that game. This wasn't the beautiful game of magic that I thought it was. And the fact that I thought that I played so well punctuates the idea that players who tend to win, uh, players who win tend not to see their own mistakes, however horrible. The next time you luck sack opponent top decks you, the one crappy card he needs to win the game on the last turn, you know. The turn that you were about to win, deserved to win, but ultimately didn't. Damn that lucky luck sack top decker. Think for a moment. You might have made a crucial error in the first couple of turns of the game, whereby your opponent was gifted 
with a two life that postponed the end of the game by a turn or more. You may have given him the opportunity to stabilize the board, make a crucial chump block, or top deck the card that beat you when the opponent should never have had the chance. You know that I missed a Pro Tour top eight two years ago because I missed mm-hmm. an Eidolon trigger, right? I was like, my opponent's like, Luxac me, drew all four Siege Rhinos. I'm like, I can't believe this. He's just like, yeah, you missed an Eidolon trigger on turn two. And I was just like, I looked at the life totals and I'm like, you're right. And, you know, I finished whatever, top 20 of that Pro Tour, played my heart out, won, you know, won one of the draft tables and went 2 1 in the other one. And that's not even my good format, right? Yeah, Eidolon Trigger. <laughs> one Eidolon Trigger. What do you think about that one? I didn't even realize it. He pointed it out to me afterwards, you know, because I guess watching a legend of the Pro Tour commit suicide is hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In the PTQ I attended a couple of weeks ago with a different blue-green threshold deck, I lost 0-2 to an Enchantress deck, I believe a pair of five-turn games. He declared a mulligan in game one and took both it and game two at two life. I had cards in hand at the end of both games and resolved intuition in both games. While it is an easy thing to say that Enchantress is blue-green threshold's worst matchup, and that both games were close, certainly a lone turn from winning each, it is a much more difficult thing to say that two points of opponent's life and at least two cards in hand at the end of the game, seemed to indicate that there was some different play I could have made, probably in the first couple of turns of the game, that might have helped me reach a different result. No, it doesn't help that we were playing for top eight. Michael J. Bonus section, learning the tech. You can shuffle all the cards you want and read as many articles you like, and subscribe to premium services and or purchase variant cards and tokens over the internet. But the surest way to magically improve yourself is to eat at Katz's Deli. (laughs) Katz's Deli on Houston Street in Ludlow in Manhattan, New York, is a place spoken of with reverence by the select cadre of magicians who frequent it. Sure, Mikey P. may insist on getting his sandwich with lettuce on it, but that doesn't mean that you have to. Katz's is the home of the finest corned beef and pastrami sandwiches anywhere on the planet Earth, and these sandwiches have the ability to increase not only your waist size, but improve your success at magical cards. <laughs> Take the case of Aaron Forsyth. I took Aaron Forsyth to Katz's Deli one night. He was a weakling and unable to finish his sandwich. Probably Gary Wise finished it for him, I don't recall. With even only half a Katz's sandwich powering up his play, Aaron found himself mising his way to day three of the Pro Tour the very next day. A recent development known as Finding Out They Deliver has allowed New York area players to make neutral ground PTQs even more enjoyable. Porn star and Star City writer Adam Rubens was getting his clock clean in the top eight of New York states this year, but it was all good. He was simultaneously winning the fight against his sandwich and hating his opponent out by eating that delicious pile of pastrami and rye right there at the top eight table. With a little help from Katz's, getting smashed by Plow Wonder doesn't feel nearly as bad. John Schuler inventor of the tournament report there's a picture of john schuler and a happy katz's customer he's drinking an entire pitcher of sprite so he's, he's, that's <laughs> pitcher of sprite he's drinking it like a cup john schuler has been on vacation for the last six years <coughs> literally like it's been on, hasn't stopped he came back to america to go to a wedding with me i mean no he's just been on vacation he just does facebook updates from like malawi this is what another Katz's Deli patron looks like. You may recognize her better in this picture, taken for one of the most famous scenes in cinema at Katz's Deli. Of course, that's Meg Ryan from When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. She fakes the orgasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The classic scene. That there sandwich is very good, and young Meg is about to get very excited, believe me. There's one thing I can teach you other than who's the beatdown. I hope that it's to drown your troubles with brisket, to drown your brisket in a bowl of complimentary gravy. In case you were wondering, Katz's Deli is a wholly different Katz than L.A. Top 8 competitor Adam. Uh, I actually want to read something extra. This is a bonus thing you probably don't know about. Ooh. <clears throat> bonus content. Bonus content. See, I'm, I have to go on my own Facebook wall. We'll see if I can find this. <clears throat> la, la, la. It's a story from the same PTQ. Or not from the same PTQ, from the same season uh, that's referenced here. <clears throat> Let me see if I uh, we're just going to cut this part out. No, we're, we're doing it. Here we go. We're uh, almost what? here. We're here. We're here. We'll find this. 
Hashtag MTG Stories. I split the finals of a multi-format neutral ground cash tournament with Tony Sai, who scoops the actual last match to me, allowing for a perfect constructed portion. I calculate this should qualify me for the next Pro Tour. I check the DCI site, and it looks like I should be queued. This is in the first few months of my marriage, so I decide I will road trip with the boys anyway to a PTQ I don't actually have to play in because, again, I am already queued on rating. I am not sure how that worked out in my head, but that's what I did, and apparently my wife allowed this to occur. So me, Brian David Marshall, Justin Poland, and Tony Sai road trip to some PTQ in some New England state. I just wander around all day not playing, but making fun of other people's bad play. BDM loses his winning in because he doesn't pay for a syncopate with his two untapped werebears. Ah, BDM! BDM's birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday. Poland makes top eight but loses in the finals, if I recall, because he messes up on-table math with a centaur chieftain. Somehow, BDM has convinced us all that wild mongrels and arrogant worms are overrated, and we should be summoning centaur chieftains. (coughs) Or at least, I would have if I had not been, you know, already cute on reading. So it is a miserable finish to the day, with BDM missing winning in and Justin losing the slot. It is late, and we are driving back to NYC. We are coming into Connecticut, but Justin is all veering into different lanes and stuff, and we decide we are going to die if we don't get off the road, so we decide to get a hotel and just follow whatever country bumpkin signs say to go to the hotel. Well, X minus one of us decide this. Tony is desperately trying to say he lives like 15 minutes from here. He lived in Connecticut, not NYC back then, but we just ignore him. We're way off the road, and it's what can only be called werewolf country. Werewolf country. I mean, this place just smelled like werewolves. Hockey-masked-faced serial killers go here to train before being killed by, you know, local werewolves. We find this so-called hotel. It smells like a place you would go to be killed in a satanic ritual. (laughs) Justin Parks, I shit you not, in a barn. Like with hay on the ground. I should have put quotes around the word hotel in the first sentence. We get to this room that is suffocating with dust, yet, at the same time, someone probably died in, say, one day ago. There is only one bed, so we 2v2 for it. (laughs) Yes, Justin was going to kill us on the road, but we are all awake enough for 2v2. It is me and Tony versus Justin and BDM. Tony goes 2-0, I go 1-1, one and, one, and we get the bed. <sighs> Before falling asleep, we make fun of Justin and BDM, but make sure they lock up and stuff, because, you know, fucking werewolves. <laughs> Yawn again, go to sleep. I wake up a few hours later, and I shit you not, Justin is sleeping halfway out the door. Half his body is in the room. Half his body, including his head, is out the door of the hotel room in, like, the dirt outside. (laughs) One half of me is like, why is this person sleeping half outside the room? And the other half is like, wait a minute, I am in the middle of Werewolf Country, Connecticut, and my door is wide open because my roommate decided it would be a good idea to slide halfway outside in the hay dirt. Obviously, we rouse, make fun of Justin, and close plus lock the stupid door. Justin complains the room is musty, no lie, and that he wanted some air, which I guess translates into sleeping with, you know, the top half of your body and head outside the actual hotel room, with hotel in quotes, in the middle of werewolf country, where outside the room is actually outside, like what God made, rather than like a hallway. Not that that is an excuse, because we only had like a 25% chance of surviving through the night to begin with. Luckily, we are not killed. Anyway, it is all good. Because at least I'm queued for the PT. Oh, wait. The week before the PT, the Q rating of the neutral ground tournament I won was downgraded to 24k from 32k retroactively. So I lose my invitation to the PT as well. Fucking werewolves. What a tragedy. <laughs> was I good at that? F Bob Marr, right? I was good at telling you. That was a good story. Right? That was a good story. That was worth it. All right, talk to me about this article that you wanted to do. Um, so I I don't know. I, I like this this article a lot because I th- I think the big thing, the, the most important thing from the article, is looking back at games you win and realizing the mistakes you made in those games. 
And I think that'll help you like become a better player overall. Um, for example, at that PPTQ I played, I played my quarterfinal match versus like a four-color tokens deck, which I don't. I mean, which is like a fine matchup for approach. I think he had like negates and stuff in his deck, so post board, so maybe it was tougher. Um, but my game, my game, I won. Yeah, I, I won the match two zero. But my game one. I like had a severe miscalc where I, I could have like activated my Ascanta that I knew there was an approach in my library and could have gotten it, but instead I, I like messed I like totally missed it, right? I passed the turn. I'm like, all right, what's the worst thing that can happen? He kills you, it's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, the worst thing that could happen was I mean he he got I, he had a champion of what's in his graveyard that I totally forgot about in a million mana. So of course he gets my champion draws four cards. I'm like, okay, if he doesn't negate I might lose this game now because, you know. Did he have negate? Well, and he also had an annoy procession in play too. So he, he got, had two champions. So he got he got to draw eight double cards. Triggers? Yeah, double triggers. So he got oh, to draw wow. eight cards. I was like, oh god. Did he have a negate? Like this. No, yeah. <laughs> it was game one. So I, yeah. So this but, is like totally one of these games where like you play like a clown, and then you still win, right? Yeah. I mean, also like, but and this is one of those things where it's like my my deck was probably a lot more powerful than my opponents, and my opponent made mistakes too, like. And I, 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 you know, but I could have said, wow, I play." I think at the end of that match, I was thinking, like, wow, I must have played that match so well. But I made this, like, this like, let's say you killed yourself with your own Eidolons, and then your opponent just <laughs> kills himself by not killing you the next turn? Yeah. It'd similar. be like that, right? Yeah. Congratulations, you're a regional champion. <laughs> um, like, literally, is lethal in play and just doesn't kill you, right? But it's only because you don't know how to play with Eidolon. Like, this is like a game any normal person would win, right? No, just... Those are two different games. I lost the game where I killed myself with Eidolon. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but you just, like, Why didn't you just chump block? Oh, this is the perfect example. How are we not talking about this earlier in the like, article? You literally just chump block, attack, and cast Skullcrack, and he's dead. Instead, you're like, oh, no blocks. So you take 11, and you're like, oh, shoot, I'll kill myself with Eidolon if I do this. I'll do it anyway. Like, oh, I'm dead. I, I remember being like, wow, I, I won that match. I, I, my sideboard decisions were so like, great. Like, why didn't you just chump block him? <laughs> like, he's dead if you chump block the... It's like, it's, well, you took 11. That's like... That's <laughs> so, so many Eidolon ago. <laughs> I remember we talked about this in the in our first podcast episode, and it's, a, it's like a year later. It's more than a year later, and we're still talking about it. It's an epic mistake that's been seen by, you know, dozens of people on YouTube. <laughs> Probably, probably hundreds. <laughs> there, were, hundreds. There, were, there were hundreds watching. Hundreds watching? All right. Yeah. Well, anyway. anyway. But that would, that would be an example, right? Yeah. And then in game three, you just said, you mulliganed to five, which I can't believe. I mulliganed to five game two. No, I thought it was game three. Game three was the, the, the scavenging news thing. Yeah, he just, he like just hurled that game into the graveyard, right? He should have won on three different ways. He didn't, though. High five. Regional champion. I didn't really need a high five. Mental high five. Oh, all right. What do you want to talk about? Anything else? Um, no, but I, I think. But going back to that, that was. Uh, I think. I think it's really important to look at the mistakes you make in your matches and not. Because I, I think. I think a lot of players that I've encountered that maybe like that are trying to improve don't don't realize this. And I mean, I'm a, I'm gonna follow it for a two. Everyone wants to be proud of them of the wins they they do and, and be proud. And they can say, you know, I think I played very well in this match. And then everyone wants to blame their losses on luck. Yeah, or luck or, or bad matchup or and but you know I'm a, I'm at fault for that. Like I, I do that you know more times than I should. And it's it's you know you have to get into the 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 rigor and like the routine of of not doing that. Just kind of taking your your wins as they go. And I, you, you should focus on the on the plays more than your record or, or being proud of a match you played. Right. Yeah, you should just focus on the plays. Or I mean, actually, you should focus on the decisions. Yeah, I that's prefer what I to mean. say focus on the decisions, not focus on the plays. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There's decisions that aren't just plays. I'll give you an example. We'll end on this one. When I won that tournament with uh, Blue Red Splinter Twin, right? So, like, oh, yeah. I'm, so, I'm so smart. I invented this deck. It just beats everything. Y'all stupid. You know, whatever. <coughs> Ending the Age of Cobblade. I believe I said I would end the Age of Cobblade because I won this tournament. Cobblade's age didn't end because I won the tournament, by the way. They ended. Band Stone Forge Mystic still. So play this. So uh, I get to the finals. I'm playing against Edgar Flores. You know who Edgar Flores is? Yeah. It's like always on Star City stream like every week. Really like constantly top eight in, in Star Cities. Um, I had beaten Dave Shields. who Dave Shields had won earlier that year 
the most difficult tournament I think in the history of Magic. Um, he won at Grand Prix Dallas, I want to say. Thirty-two preordains in the top eight. Thirty-two Jace the Mind Sculptors and Shields won that one. So I beat him in the top eight. And I beat Reed Duke in the top four. Reed Duke had never played on the Pro Tour yet at this point. All right, so now we know Reed Duke is going to, you know, whiz-bang Hall of Fame player probably, right? But at the time, he was just a kid, right? Mm-hmm. So it didn't even mean anything to me. that I, Shields had literally won the most difficult tournament in the history of Magic, like a month earlier, and Reed Duke, right? So, but I'm up against Star City Games grinder Edgar Flores in the finals. I'm like 100-0 against Callblade at this point, right? But it's like late at night, and I'm just like, let's split. Why would I split? Do you know what? I beat him in six minutes? <laughs> six minutes was the extent of the match. That's a horrible decision, right? I literally gave him like 500 extra dollars. <laughs> like, that is a horrible. I mean, I was happy. Like, I still brought a lot of money, you know, for winning the tournament. But, like, like why would I split there? Right? You know what I mean? It's a terrible decision. I was just like, oh, wow, that was weak. <laughs> Six minutes. That's like uh, not even, that's not even like the, think about the shuffling time, right? <laughs> In between games. It was a terrible play. decision. I'm telling you, that's like one of the big, bigger wins of my career, right? You know, notably, I made like a new archetype that people all copied and, you know, Won a bunch of money and, you know, wrote some hilarious magic articles about it afterwards. But horrible mistake. Meaning, meaningful loss of money. That was a terrible decision in the tournament that I won. Sure. All right. <laughs> any, any other big things that you can talk about from this article? Yeah, I think, I think it's just an important thing that um, people can put into practice that will help them improve in magic. I think there's a lot of lessons in this article that um, are, are good for people to realize if they really want to and improve. And, if they, you know, if they're not winning so often or they, you know, they're trying to figure out, like, how can I be a better player? I think this is one of the things you can do is, you know, have someone watch you and, and try and think about your games in a more, you know, abstract way than, than saying... I, I played well, I won, or I lost because I, I got unlucky, bad matchup, right? It's like the easiest thing to say. But I think if you, by going the extra mile and, and looking at the decisions you could have made better in the game, it'll help you improve. Yeah, I agree. I think that, that just identifying the fault points that you have rather than just throwing away mentally the games that you're not supposed to win is, uh, is one of the ways that you get better. Like um, re- regional championships this year. I played against five Noble Hierarch decks. We identified that as our worst matchup, right, going into that tournament. Because um, in the PPTQ I lost in the finals, I lost to the same player twice. I lost in the first round, and then I lost in the finals. Like, you know, Noble Hierarch, uh, Noble Hierarch uh, Collected Company uh, archetype. And I think I beat five of them in the, in the regional championship between... I, I lost to Mono Green in top eight, right? So it must have been in the Swiss, all five. Um, and so our identification of Noble Hierarch collected company decks as being so dangerous was like one of the things that led to the innovation of Chain to the Rocks, right? We would never had Chain to the Rocks if... Um, if uh, yeah, because we, we yeah. never run Path, because you can't you path, can't path, you can't path a, a, a the same thing as that they have a Noble Hierarch, right? Yeah. yeah, you can't do that. So we needed to have a one casting cost way to deal with Noble Hierarch, especially on the draw. Because the only card that targets it is his lightning bolt, right? Yeah, and you only have four. Right? Yeah. So unless you're going to play some goober card like Shard Volley, right? Or a Gut Shot. It's just whatever awful crap. Like, you're not playing any of it. Yeah. So that's a, that was a, a great innovation. And, you know, having four copies of Chain to the Rocks. But we were, like, insane, right? Like, four Chain to the Rocks, four Searing, like, three Grim Lava Mancer, four more Searing. We just executed every creature someone could play. <laughs> but anyway, but, you know, I mowed down five Noble Hierarch decks instead of losing. Like, in the regional PTQ in Utah, I lost to, um, to uh, you know, a Noble Hierarch Eldrazi deck, right? This is Noble Hierarch. Yeah, the band, the yeah, band deck. so difficult. But if, if I had Chain to the Rocks, I probably would have, I don't know if I would have won, but I would have been more competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Just thinking, look, you know, it's getting your butt kicked it actually leads to positive iterations. Of that. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. 
Hope you all liked it, Canada. If you like this podcast, this Shoot, episode. Man, it's been so long since we <laughs> yeah. forgot. All right. Uh, uh, subscribe. I don't know. Give us a, a nice a nice ring on iTunes, maybe. Uh, what was it? Yeah, rate, um, rate us on iTunes. I don't know. If you like this episode and you want more, let us know. And People have been letting us know. We just have not been recording. <laughs> I mean, just to be clear. Yeah. Hey, is this recall still exist? Oh, yeah. Traveling. You know, we traveled to like the club last week. That's where we traveled to. All right. All right. Roman's making like a cutoff to his, his neck shape. Like, what do I care if people know I went to? I took you to the club. You're a man now. Like, oh my God, he's all red. That's what kind of man he is. He's red deck face. Goodbye, Canada. Right.